Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Hello, and welcome back to Berlin Inside Out, the foreign affairs podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Aaron Gash Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. And Aaron, we're continuing our look from Berlin to Paris today after a great discussion with uh, Sylvie Kaufmann and Jakob Ross and our short chat with Nicola Tenza over the last couple of weeks. We are indeed. Now, listeners, if you haven't heard that particular episode yet, we do encourage you to check it out as we are going to be picking up on many of the themes we spoke about there on today's episode and going into them in a little bit more detail. And to help us do that today, we are joined by Camille Garant with the European Council on Foreign Relations and Georgina Wright, Deputy Director for International Studies at Institut Montaigne. Welcome to the show. Now, let's start by picking up on something that Sylvie actually told us last episode, which is that there's so many bottom-up contacts between France and Germany, parliamentary links, permanent civil service, and local contacts, but that the tone at the top is particularly bad at the moment. How important is that relationship at the top, and how does Schultz Macron compare to previous Franco-German couples we've seen in the past, like the uh, named Mercosi, Merkel and Sarkozy, <laughs> uh, or uh, even going as far back as Mitterrand and, and Kohl? Um, and where is that leaving Europe when we consider the relationship at the moment? Such a good question. I mean, I think. Links at the very top matter, but they don't matter as much as they do perhaps for other bilateral relations. So if I take the UK and France, if you think back to 2017, 2018, when the relationship was really bad, it, it was really bad because at the very top, they weren't talking to each other. I think France and Germany have, I mean, I don't think I know of any other relationship that's as close as uh, France's relationship with Germany. It's incredibly institutionalized, which means that even when the very top doesn't get on, they still talk. But the problem is you do need the very top to agree to things for the rest of the uh, government to kind of start working on it, think of joint proposals. So it does matter. Um, it doesn't matter in that they will continue to talk. But I think it does matter when you have major problems. And, you know, until recently, that the, the EU discussion on electricity reform was completely blocked because France and Germany couldn't get along. Um, there are a number of other discussions that are blocked as well, because they're not seeing eye to eye. And I think my sense from Paris um, is really that they, they simply don't see to trust each other at the moment. There's a lot of, you know, we don't talk honestly. And when we do, we feel that we're not saying everything that we actually feel. So there really, it does feel like the relationship is in a bit of a rut. Camille, indeed, perhaps it's not so much what's happening as what's not happening that we see as a result of this lost opportunities from this lack of trust, lost opportunities or lost chances to take the initiative, would, would you say? First of all, I very much agree with Georgina on, on the description of the difference between the Franco-German relationship and let's say the Franco-British relationship. Because the Franco-German relationship is so institutionalized, it helps uh, mitigate the, the moments where the top-level relationship is not as good as it should be by having series of meetings um, from the top down at all levels, which is uh, it's a massive web of, of, of relations there uh, that was built since the Elysee Treaty, you know, in the uh, 60 years ago, and it's, it's, still, uh, it's still in use in many ways. On, on the relationship at the top, I think it's worthwhile stressing that um, it always takes a little while for a president and a chancellor to get along. You know, there are, there are multiple examples of that. You know, Cole was a bit of an orphan of Mitterrand, never got along really well with uh, uh, Chirac, and it took Schroeder to build uh, that uh, uh, relationship between the two. And uh, um, uh, Merkel initially had some uh, reservations about uh, both uh, Hollande and then Macron and then eventually built a relationship. And now we see the same sort of transition, but on the German side. So, so I think it's fair to recognize that there is always a, a, a moment uh, to build a relationship, but precisely because it's institutionalized, because it has a, a, a heavy battle rhythm of meetings, it tends to force the leaders to meet. What I would say is a bit specific in this particular moment, which has to do, of course, uh, partially with the war in Ukraine, 
uh, is, is that um, um, Schultz uh, came in with an agenda which was not, uh, which, which was largely transatlantic, and has made a very deliberate decision, which was to be as close as he could to Biden in the management of the uh, Ukraine war. Uh, and not necessarily prioritize the Franco-German relationship in, in that particular crisis, which shaped a lot of its foreign policy in the early days, including the Titan vendor. So, so I think that is a, a, an element which is uh, very specific, uh, which I would, um, uh, you know, it's not a, a blaming game, but I think, it's, uh, I, think, I think it has played a very important role in the fact that uh, uh, the Franco-German relationship is not as front and central uh, as it could be uh, uh, in the in in the first um, uh, two years of, of Olaf Scholz in, in the Chancellery. Right, which a, a lot of people have said bodes ill for Europe. And if the Franco-German motor isn't isn't running, Europe's not driving. But there are different views on that around Europe, of course, and others are not waiting uh, to to die wondering. It would seem so. Are France and Germany actually running the risk of being outpaced by those countries that are really keeping up with events? And how crucial is the Franco-German motor to the future of the EU, but also to Europe's future? Maybe if I could jump in on this one, um, I guess the first point I would stress is that. This issue about the Franco-German motor engine uh, couple, the couple, the French call it, which is not, the, I know it's something that the Germans don't use, is a bit specific uh, because without it, it's not working. But on the other end, there is no real replacement. So it's a sort of bizarre setup where... On the one end, you can't do anything without it, but there is really no alternative. So, you, so there is a, a sort of grumpiness on the part of others to say, oh, but the Franco-German thing is, is dysfunctional, so let's ignore it. But then things don't move forward. And we see it now. We are not going to take forward a conversation on enlargement, whether we're talking about Ukraine or anything else. We're not going to take forward a conversation about the future of the EU, uh, including the institutional conversation. Uh, without a very strong Franco-German uh, uh, narrative there. Of course, others, and that's the big difference compared to 20 or 30 years ago, have a much uh, stronger say. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with the new Polish government. It's going to be very interesting. It's interesting to watch Meloni play the Italian card uh, quite uh, smartly. It's interesting to see how a... a re-elected Sanchez will continue to be a, a player there and, and so on and so forth. But, but the, the specific nature of the Franco-German uh, uh, engine is that if it doesn't, if it's dysfunctional, it really has an impact on the whole of the EU. When other bilateral relationships, other uh, players you know, they can be a bit marginalized for a while and it doesn't really matter. One of the things we've noticed is that France and Germany have reacted differently to those other voices that are now not only starting to be expressed more loudly, the Central East European countries and the Nordics seem to have found their voice a little more. Those voices are being heard in other places around Europe. But France and Germany have had slightly different reactions to that, haven't they? I think what's really interesting with 2017, because is absolutely right, you know, that, that France and Germany don't always get on, but the EU can't really move forward unless they agree. And, and that's just a fact. Um, but all the times they haven't got on, they've invested in coalitions with other countries to try and build support for their position. And what you've seen over the past couple of years is France, for example, really diversify its, its coalition. So, you know, about 10 years ago, you'd think the Netherlands would always see Germany or the UK, for that matter, as its first ally inside the EU. Uh, the Nordics would probably turn against the UK and Germany. Now you're seeing much more investment. So the France and the Netherlands have struck several um, kind of deals. Um, they, they put forward common proposals. You've got the Netherlands and Spain publishing something on strategic autonomy. Like you, you're seeing much more kind of flexible coalitions. But I think what's, what's absolutely clear is since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is that I don't think countries like Poland or any country for that matter in Central and Eastern Europe is, is going to be happy with Germany and France alone calling the shots. And I think there have been calls uh, to be taken more seriously, to be listened to. Um, and, and I think that that is being heard in Paris. And I think there is more awareness of what they think. If you think back to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, France now has a strategy towards the Balkans. I mean, it never really had a clearly defined strategy until that point. So there is shifting. There is also a recognition 
that you need to be listening and building those relationships with Central and Eastern Europe. Um, but at the end of the day, it's also clear that you, unless France and Germany agree, and the EU is going to be stuck, and it's very hard to outweigh them both. Yeah, where does Poland fit into all of this, especially given its uh, recent uh, election, and with Donald Tusk uh, on one hand heading a rather uh, large coalition of parties with a lot of different interests that he has to uh, reconcile, but also on the other hand, he is very experienced, he used to be a European Council uh, president. Um, where does Poland fit into that relationship and uh, driving Europe forward? I guess the the, the, the Poles uh, <clears throat> the Poles are, are certainly with with Tusk in in, in charge um, going to be much more um, a bigger part of the, the European conversation. Um, uh, uh, law, the Law and Justice Party was always um, a bit of a uh, on the margins of the conversation because of its uh, views on on the EU and its own its agenda that made it uh, a bit of a of a, uh, put uh, uh, Poland a bit on the on the fringe of the the EU conversation at least, uh, uh, even if uh, Poland was much more successful when discussing um, issues such as uh, Ukraine and, and in the NATO environment. Uh, but the, the so so what's going to be interesting to watch how the Weimar Triangle is um, uh, reshuffled and revived. Uh, you know, it is it has been a format that uh, that was a bit of a. Uh, post-unification format to to uh, uh, bring uh, the, the, the Warsaw, Berlin, and Paris in the same uh, club and and so on, uh, which has has had its moment, but never quite uh, a lot. And, and the, the interesting issue is that could it be an opportunity for the Poles to play a little bit the roles that the Brits had, had in the former EU environment of being the sort of third uh, player in the conversation. Uh, that uh, creates a, a bit of dynamic. I, I think it could work well if Tusk is indeed capable of, of talking for most of the Central and Eastern Europeans, uh, which is always a challenge for uh, uh, Polish governments. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, they, they don't necessarily have a hard time building a coalition of the so-called uh, Bucharest Nine or B4, and, and the others don't necessarily give them uh, uh, the role of speaking on behalf of all of them. But still, I think there is a there is an interesting role, and given Tusk's um, uh, uh, experience and seniority, uh, I think there is room for something along these lines uh, uh, coming. Uh, of course, uh, then you will, you, will, you will see where, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the both the Spanish and the Italians react because they all always have been also keen on being uh, at the head table, if I may put it this way. Let's go to the Bratislava speech that Macron gave um, earlier this year. In some ways, uh, we might even uh, sort of equate that to a French Seidenwende speech, much similar to um, what Olaf Scholz uh, gave before the German Bundestag right after the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Is it fair to characterize it as such? I think it is significant. I think the shift on enlargement and the shift on taking Central and Eastern Europe more seriously happened before the Bratislava speech. Um, you know, if you even think back to May 2022, so several months after Russia invaded Ukraine, there was already much more talk about okay, enlargement, what do we do about it? What would an, an EU at 35 look? Um, but I think it really took the Bratislava speech um, to for Macron to really convince uh, Central and Eastern Europe that he was serious about this. And that's because, you know, he made uh, a series of blunders in some of his speeches and interviews, which maybe gave the indication that, that France was, had not changed position on anything. But I, I think that shift began before the Bratislava speech, and I think it was crystallised uh, during that speech for several reasons. One, I think, is, you know, the realisation that the window of opportunity, there's a window of opportunity now to, to really be serious about enlargement. Most, the majority of the EU population see Ukraine as European. Uh, support enlargement, and so we should be making progress during that time. And and I think there's they're really mindful that that window of opportunity could close quite rapidly. Um, you know, you're, we're already talking about war fatigue. Um, it, it might be at some point we'll talk about enlargement fatigue, especially when it comes down to the cost of it. And you know, and there's already discussions around how much is it going to cost the EU to rebuild Ukraine. Well, how much is it going to cost? Uh, you know, how much would enlargement cost? How much do we need to invest in these countries? How do we spur private investment in these countries? And how do we not forget 
the rest of the EU in that. So, so there's a, there are real concerns. So I think one is the window of opportunity. Two is it's going to happen. So we don't want to be in the back. We want to be in the driving seat or at least next to the dri- driver. So we want to be part of that conversation. We want to be shaping the EU. The third reason is uh, enlargement also means reforming the EU. That's great. Macron, you know, from in 2017 with his big speech, had made a series of suggestions of how you could reform the EU and they think this will accelerate it. And then I think the fourth and final point is they really see an EU at 35 whenever that happens is the EU finally having the mass it needs, the critical mass it needs to be a geopolitical actor. And I think that that's not uninteresting. But I think there's, Macron said it himself, you know, enlargement's complicated. Um, There are, you know, member states inside the EU that aren't uh, overjoyed about the prospect of enlargement, who are really concerned that it will dilute and disintegrate the EU. So I think there are key questions about how you manage that process and what you do in the meantime between, you know, now when they're not members and the day that they join. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's some who are not so keen on enlargement. There's others who are very much not keen on reform, as we've seen from the Central Eastern Europeans, the Nordics, who are the ones really giving the strong drive to enlargement. But it's interesting that you mentioned that France is taking very much the geopolitical point of view on that and seeing that this is indeed the geopolitical opportunity of a generation. That's something that's been really slow to come in Berlin. And even now you hear every time you speak to the the government officials responsible or people around government circles, the obstacles come first. And it's not the solutions, it's not the benefit. Even now, Georgina, you mentioned that um, the costs of enlargement are discussed. Camille, are we properly pricing in the costs of not enlarging? Are we properly pricing in the cost of not seizing this opportunity? From that perspective, Macron, you know, who's been... um uh, nicknamed the uh, think tanker in uh, in chief uh, by uh, a, a colleague Remontas, and I think it's interesting when you read his speeches. I think he's always trying to throw ideas and and to uh, think through things. Um, and and from that that perspective, Bratislava was indeed one of the most important uh, speeches uh, he uh, he gave uh, for for two reasons. First of all, it, it did come after an effort to engage Eastern Europe, uh, 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 and uh, Macron is, I think, the first president who visited every single EU member state in his first term. So yeah, there is a, something deliberate in the way he approaches that. A second thing, which was just as important is it's one of the speeches where I didn't contradict himself on the flight back, uh, which he tends to do sometimes, uh, and which undermines a bit the quality of the initial message. Macron and the French diplomacy have been building up on the Bratislava speech for now more, more, six, more than six months. So, so it, it, it is something that is really uh, uh, important. Um, I think that the the, the, the Couple of things I would add to Georgina's point, and, and to, but also to answer your question is uh, where there, it is geopolitical. I think there was a, a bit of an apology to the Central and Eastern Europeans, uh, which is rare by French uh, president. Uh, uh, it, and it was it was a sort of public apology and uh, a mood of you were you were right. Second, it was about enlargement of the EU, but also of NATO. So that was a bit of a shock, I guess, to the Germans uh, to hear the French saying, you know, we are, we are fine with uh, Ukraine joining NATO and, um, and we don't see a problem there, which we then saw at Vilnius with uh, a, an unusual uh, uh, flipping of uh, uh, sides uh, with um, um, Macron and uh, Sunak being more forward-leaning than Biden and Scholz for that matter. So, so I think it's a very interesting mood, and it sort of shows that Macron has really the, the war in Ukraine has sinked in into its vision of Europe and how it, it needs to be uh, uh, approached. Then on the enlargement versus deepening and so on, I think there is the, the French system is giving a lot of uh, thought to these uh, issues at the moment. It does recognize that an EU at um, uh, 35 will require some institutional changes, and in that I would I tend to disagree with those who say, oh, but that's a sort of a way of saying it's not you know easy way to say it's not going to happen. Um, you know uh, by by putting the bar so high that uh, uh, in a way it, it enables Macron to be in favor of enlargement, but by uh, setting a uh, the need for a reform that precedes enlargement making clear that it won't happen anytime soon. I think that if you, when you speak to the French, French officials, 
they do recognize that it's going to take time, but they are still pushy. Uh, they are not uh, setting it as a condition. They are setting it as a condition for success, which is slightly different uh, uh, um, than, than saying, you know, once we have uh, uh, reformed the treaties, we will be in a position to enlarge. It is, we want to move forward and move at pace on enlargement, whether it's EU or NATO uh, once the, the uh, conflict is, is, is over. Uh, but uh, we recognize that it, it needs to make adjustments, which I think everyone should recognize. And, and probably is also reassuring for those who might be a bit reluctant on the grounds that it's going to cost too much money or it's going to be too complicated to achieve. That's such a seemingly subtle but massively significant difference, the two approaches you outlined there about conditionality, condition to succeed. And indeed, that's something I don't think is the same in Berlin. That's a distinction between the uh, the approach in Paris and that in Berlin so far, as far as we, we see it here. But also, interesting to hear you both talk about how the shift to rapprochement with Central Eastern Europe to a better relationship with Central Eastern Europe was happening earlier. I think what was, for me, really significant about Bratislava was, indeed, as you mentioned, Camille, the apology that was there. We missed a good opportunity to listen to you, referring specifically back to Chirac's comments um, that we mentioned with Sylvie Kaufman and Jakob Ross uh, also, that President Chirac in the run-up to the Iraq war said that Central Eastern Europe had missed a good opportunity to shut up. So this is a direct reference to previous failed French uh, policy on Central Eastern Europe. But also, as we said to Macron in Bratislava, you know, there needs to be concrete steps to back this up, to make it a believable change. So after these blunders, um, misunderstandings, however they may have been phrased, they need concrete steps. And that concrete step was there in Vilnius, as you rightly said, the support for Ukraine's NATO membership, a real volt fast and something very interesting to observe. But no such change in Berlin. And Camille, when we were speaking earlier in the year, uh, you, you gave what I thought was one of the most memorable answers to a question I've heard in, in recent times when asked that, how was the feeling in Paris about the German vendor about German uh, rearmament, for example? Was it viewed positively? And if, if I recall correctly, you said... The answer is yes and yes. Yes, because it's a good idea, and yes, because we don't believe it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> um, is is that still the feeling about the Titan vendor no, in, I, I, in Paris? I, to, I, I did say this, and, and I, I, I stand by it in the sense that I think, that, you know, to, to the question that there was a concern over uh, German military leadership, uh, and, and I think there is that concern doesn't exist in Paris. There, there is still a... A, an idea that it's good that Germany uh, puts money into defense, but becomes more active on the front. But I don't think the French feel threatened uh, by this on the idea that Germany would suddenly become the dominant military power, and that uh, we should we should feel uh, um, uh, concerned or even concerned from a balance of power uh, uh, perspective. There might be specific issues where it, it triggers um, uh, some some. Uh, uh, disputes, uh, typically the issue of uh, air and missile defense. Uh, there has been a, 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 a quite a, quite a spat over uh, the uh, Sky Shield initiative uh, on saying you know the the, the French um, uh, being critical on both the ground that it is a, an initiative that seems to focus primarily on buying off the shelves American and Israeli technology uh, at the expense of more European uh, solutions. Uh, and uh, uh, while the Germans argue that it's all a matter of um, um, acting at pace uh, with existing technology rather than investing in, in, in things that will take place in 10 or 15 years. Uh, and I think they are both right in a way. So, so, it's, so it's a sort of a, a tricky one. And then there is a more sophisticated conversation that we might uh, leave aside for the moment, which is, uh, you know, is, is the technology chosen under the part of the technology chosen under the sky shield uh, the best one for the type of threat we're facing but that's uh, uh, the, which is which is a, a, a another conversation the but i think the, the on on the whole uh, the french see uh, germany's um uh, confirmed or uh, commitment to defense spending as a good news um especially and i thought it was interesting that the uh, latest uh, commitments uh, came also with a confirmation, uh, which was not a given, that Franco-British, Franco-German cooperation would continue. And uh, Boris Pistorius has been crystal clear that those projects would continue, uh, and uh, that uh, and the fact that the 
budget is now confirmed beyond the 100 billion special fund uh, make that pledge credible. Uh, um, uh, the fact that the German defense budget is, is bound to continue to increase and gradually replace the special fund to do indeed reach the 2%, make that pledge credible. Because there was a fear in Paris, uh, and I'll stop on that, but there was a fear in Paris that the 100 billion would be spent quickly on essentially US off-the-shelf acquisition, but then you know, Germany would sort of fall back into its usual uh, um, uh, uh, constraints on defense spending and therefore would be unable to do both, meaning continue to commit to long-term projects and um, uh, uh, do some immediate uh, um, uh, uh, acquisition. Let's go to the site and vendor speech that Schultz gave for a minute. Um, if uh, When we were discussing that speech in our very first episode of Berlin Side Out, one of our guests, Britta Jakob, when we asked her what would be a successful site in Venda? She said, you know, just do the things that you said you were going to do. Actually fulfill the commitments that uh, you actually even made in this speech and that would already be successful. Um, is that the same benchmark uh, that F Paris wants? Uh, would simply doing what is in that speech um, successfully be uh, already viewed uh positively from Paris and would it enhance German credibility or is more necessary? Eager to hear what Georgina has to say about that. I, I stand by something I wrote at the time of the speech for Internationale Politik, which uh, was a paper titled The Missing European Dimension of Zeitenwender. I'm still struck by the fact that Zeitenwender is a largely domestic debate. It's about getting the German people to, uh, on, to understand how, how much the world has changed. Uh, it's still not super clear when, when listening to including some members of the Bundestag that this has completely sink in the German society. Uh, but I think that it's very important that the government is firmly committed to passing that message and repeating it and taking the decision associated with it. So that's the good news. Uh, but indeed, it is not much about Europe. You know, it's it's. Uh, partially about um, recognizing that Russia is no longer that um, uh, friend in uh, being that you can um, you know, do trade with and that uh, 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 and recognizing that you need to do more on defense. I mean, all these things are part of Zeitung but I haven't seen emerging something where that would be a strong European agenda that could be developed with the French that would be the sort of European leg of Zeitung I think from the French perspective, if Germany does more on defence, anything more than it did is already a positive. So I think that, you know, I think just to put it crudely, um, uh, and I completely agree with everything that Camille has, has just said, I still think there's a lot of confusion about Site and Vendor in the sense there was a lot of excitement, a lot of promise. Now it's like, oh, what's happening really? What's the big strategic plan? We've had a couple of papers coming out of the government um, that have given some indication. But I think also for France, obviously, European security is, is a major concern, particularly with the impending uh, US election. And Kevin and I have spoken about this before. Um, you know, we don't know whether Biden will be reelected, who might replace Biden. Stuff that you hear from the Trump campaign is that uh, Trump would be quite serious about pulling the US out of NATO, or he might, if he didn't, he might, you know, one day to the next say, well, actually, you have to all triple your defense budget right now, or we'll pull out. So we don't, you know, and there are, there are real kind of important things that are happening next year. And I think there's a real need for a Franco-German, Franco-EU, a much better and more strategic conversation about defence. And I think for France, yes, it's about Ukraine, but it's also about the Sahel. It's also about the Indo-Pacific. Um, and I think particularly in the Sahel, we've seen some cooperation, but I think there's that, you know, France has been rejected or pushed out of certain countries. It's not clear to me what other European country could replace it. And, and that is going to be a continued concern for France and, frankly, will become an even bigger concern for, for Europe. And I think that we need to have a conversation with Germany about that as well. Georgina, from my, my point of view, sitting here in Berlin, I think you're letting Berlin off too lightly. I think you're letting Germany off, off the hook a bit too easily there. The, the fact that there is an expectation there might be a strategic plan is indeed progress. The fact that Germany is doing more on defence is 
progress, but it is coming from quite a low bar. We wrote at some point back in uh, late 2022, you know, Germany was moving at the speed of shame. It's not moving at the speed of shame now, but is it moving at the speed of need? I don't think so, especially in that emerging situation you just mentioned with the uncertainty over the US commitment. Um, now, there's a lot of talk about that uncertainty in Berlin, but if the people behind that talk were really serious, we would be seeing a much quicker, much more serious rearmament, I would think. But Camille, we've heard this is a job for the EU. Isn't it also a job for European NATO members? You used to work as Assistant Secretary General at NATO. Can you tell us more about how the thinking goes there and about how the thinking in Paris either resonates or diverges from that? Yeah, I think there is a sort of fundamental issue in front of us, uh, which is uh, the degree of the US commitment to European security. Um, I think that the, there is a massive distinction between Paris and Berlin on this, in the sense that Paris has been you know, mentioning this idea in numerous uh, speeches, comments of strategic documents for years, uh, at the risk of being uh, criticized for creating a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy or experiencing a form of schadenfreude uh, with the, 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 the fact that out oh, there the Americans are, are, are uh, uh, support is not as robust as it used to be. When in Berlin, I think the, the, we have sort of faced this exact opposite issue, you know, the uh, the, uh, Berlin loves the Biden administration and, and sort of uh, doesn't want to see uh, the, you know, is maybe dodging a bit the question about what would be the consequences of a Trump redux uh, um, uh, that would be not only Trump too, but Trump's times too, I would suggest. Uh, so so, so it's, it would be a, a <clears throat> it's going to be a massive uh, challenge and I wish there was a, a real conversation on this. Then in Paris, the natural inclination is probably to talk more about the EU in such a context, but I would, um, I would, I would beg to partially disagree with that. Uh, and I think it's important to, and I think it could be an interesting element of a broader conversation, to say, okay, we need to use NATO. First of all, because if the task is to do more collective defense, we're going to need NATO. NATO has the headquarters, has the planning, has the experience of dealing with collective defense of Europe. You know, the EU is not going to reinvent the wheel uh, overnight. Uh, so I think it's going to be more a matter of how to Europeanize NATO than about um, uh, this. Second, we do need the non-EU members of NATO. Um, you know, the UK, um, uh, Norway uh, are a big part of this conversation, and uh, we're not going to decide that we, we do without them. Uh, uh, in return for those uh, neutral members of the EU who are not really interested in the collective defense uh, task in the first place. You know, we're uh, suggesting that Austria or, or Malta or Ireland would replace the UK for the, in, the, in defending Europe is honestly not serious. So in that context, I think we need to, be, to recognize that NATO is going to be a big part of this conversation. And I think the French are getting there uh, uh, in, in their own way. Uh, but they have a hard time formalizing it. So I hope they, they, they will uh, recognize that the NATO has, has such a central role for the defense of Europe that we, as, as France, need to, to invest uh, more into this organization and, in, and into this, eventually recognizing that the, there is a new role, obviously, there is a new role in fostering defense production, there is a new role in doing all sorts of very important things, including in the support for Ukraine, but that role needs to be coordinated with what happens at the NATO level. Lastly, on this um, uh, US dimension, I think there is a, a, in, in Berlin, seen from Paris at least, a need to sort of recognize that, you know, it's not only that uh, uh, Trump might be reelected, uh, which is clearly not a zero chance anymore, uh, but it's it's a general trend, you know, uh, even if Biden is re-elected, which we might hold hope for, uh, he will be more focused on the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the Middle East is uh, catching his attention again. Uh, there are limited resources. There are tough domestic debates. There is a Congress that is polarized and divided. All these things make the U.S. commitment more complicated, even with the right president. So, so that means that we need to put our act together and think about these issues and preferably together with Germany rather than pretending it's not going to happen. I think the best way of helping them is to take our fair share of the burden. Absolutely. And a big, uh, big shout out to all our listeners in the Councillor Amt who hopefully were listening to that particular piece of advice. Uh, <laughs> but very, very quickly, uh, Georgina, um, on, the, on this point, um, 
NATO is also useful because NATO has the trust of the Central East Europeans as well, right? And it's a trusted framework for actually uh, doing defense, whereas the EU isn't. Is that a significant part in the calculation in Paris and shifting, shifting the calculation there? It is definitely on security and defense and collective security and European security, definitely. Uh, but for when you talk about the US and France, they don't just talk about the, you know, its role on in Ukraine and in European security more broadly. They talk about the fact that the United States doesn't hesitate to undercut uh, EU competition. That all its embassies with the Inflation Reduction Act are practically, you know, calling on uh, French and EU businesses and saying, "Come and invest in the US, and we will pay your trip over, so you can go and see how you can invest there and everything else." So it's about much more. It's about industrial policy. It's about the state of the trading system. Uh, we've got the US and China that have adopted, you know, quite advanced state interventionist policies that, that are sort of reindustrializing by putting lots and lots and lots of money on the table. This is a very different paradigm. And I think the US is kind of, I, I don't want to say disinterest, but maybe gradual pullouts of, of the EU started with Obama. And it, it will continue regardless of who's uh, in, in the White House. It might not be as abrupt if Biden's re-elected, but there's a real serious conversation to be had, as Kenny said, with the, with the US you know, concerns in the Indo-Pacific. What are we going to do as Europeans? And, and Kenny's absolutely right. You know, when you go to Washington, there's real frustration on both sides of the aisles with Europeans. They're just saying, you simply don't do enough. You can't lead on anything. You're always asking us uh, uh, to be there, to drive the conversation. Even in the Balkans, you're not able to do anything without us. I think there's real frustration. If we if we want to help uh, Biden's chances of being re-elected, it might be helpful to show that we're very serious about meeting our side of the bargain. If I can jump in and add to Georgina's point, and, and uh, also as part of my... Um, um, not so such a message to the chancellery. You know, sometimes um, a leading from up front rather than leading from behind is useful. You know, when you, when you look at something like Ukraine, I find it interesting that um, Germany has always uh, aligned itself entirely with the US. When it's, Ukraine is a more core European interest uh, than a core American interest. And, and from that perspective, I thought it was interesting that London and Paris were taking the lead on the delivery of, for instance, long-range precision munition, and the Storm Shadow and Scalp preceded uh, uh, by far, and then still precede the Taurus, and we have this endless conversation, uh, uh, and, and it seems that the German stance is always to sort of wait to make absolutely sure that the U.S. will deliver the exact same category of weapons so Germany wouldn't be alone in doing this and that. You know, and you end up with a sort of absurd, like the absurd decision on the tanks where, you know, it took the delivery of Abrams that are not really the core, what the, the Ukrainians need uh, to move, uh, to get Berlin to move on the Leopards. And the decisions on long-range attackums and scalp and storm shadow haven't even moved the decision on the Taurus. It's a pity, uh, and I wish the Europeans, and there was more coordination amongst the Europeans, precisely to take the lead, to move forward, to, to demonstrate leadership, including sometimes to help move Washington. And in today's conversation, and I, I and for that I praise Berlin, Berlin is, is really putting a lot of... Um, uh, money on the table uh, to help uh, uh, Ukraine, including on the military front. And I wish we were all uh, passing the same message to Washington and saying, look, the Europeans are taking more than their fair share now and are spending roughly the same amount of money than you, you're doing now on, on defense. And we are, we are going to do it and we're going to be a big part of that conversation. Let's bring it back to the T word for a minute, which is which is Trump <laughs> um, and the possibility of Donald Trump uh, getting back into the White House in 2024. Uh, but as you've said before, um, Georgina, there's uh, frustration on both sides of the aisle uh, with the Europeans in attitude uh, towards Europe and towards defense in general. Uh, we have also seen, though, I think uh, that trend particularly evident on the Republican side. So it wouldn't even necessarily need to be Donald Trump who was elected um, 
who would potentially uh, advocate for more of a withdrawal from Europe or an arm's length relationship with Europe. It could be any other uh, number of Republicans, including uh, ones that are younger and up and coming within the party. And we heard uh, last week uh, from a German politician, what precisely is our strategy? Is our strategy simply to hope that the Democrats win the White House for the next 20 years? Because this literally is as bad as as, as the situation can get. Yeah, the the fingers crossed approach that has served Germany so badly over the last 20 years is still apparent in that thinking and indeed it wouldn't even have to be be guaranteed that Germany would get a favorable outcome from 20 years of democratic administrations which isn't going to happen because you've both rightly pointed to the structural shifts in US priorities and the structural shifts to their attention around the world. So do we need to be discussing for example something like extended nuclear deterrence? Uh, Kami you mentioned earlier that there's no real uh, major fear uh, that Germany is going to become the primary military power in Europe. And I think part of that is because the French obviously have something that we don't, which is uh, a nuclear weapon. And of course, the UK has it too. But how seriously do we potentially need to be having um, that discussion, extended nuclear deterrence, um, if the US does disengage or even potentially uh, pulls out of NATO? First of all, I think uh, when looking at what is missing, you know, what the US, what would disappear if the US was um, indeed... uh, very deliberately or de facto uh, less committed to European security are more key strategic capabilities than boots on the ground. You know, if you look back to the Cold War, yes, there were, you know, 330,000 American soldiers in Germany and they were a critical part of NATO's forward defense. Today, even in the uh, event, uh, you know, post-Ukraine, the, the U.S. presence in Europe is 100,000 soldiers. It's less than 10% of the manpower in Europe. Uh, it's less than 10% of the fighter jets. It's less than 10% of the tanks. So, so the issue, you know, for the defense of Europe in, in terms of boots and tanks and things like that, it's probably relies on the Europeans. What the Americans provide is the strategic depth the ability to do the reinforcement, the high readiness uh, uh, reinforcement and all of that that we don't have today. So that's the first big trend. The second thing is the strategic enablers, you know, the space, intelligence, um, strategic airlift uh, assets that are uh, in great uh, demand and that the Europeans don't have for themselves. And finally, of course, the extended nuclear deterrent, uh, which is something that the, 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 the French and the Brits do provide to a degree, as recognized by NATO, but, uh, but is, a, 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 of course, uh, in no shape or form comparable to the, 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 the mass provided by the U.S. strategic deterrent uh, in terms of the capability to produce extended deterrents. There, what I would argue for is not so much to say, okay, we're going to replace that, but is... I think there is, it's high time to have an honest conversation about what is the role of these forces um, uh, and, and is it changing. The French in particular have made a number of openings in, in multiple speeches, including a Macron speech at l'école militaire a couple of years ago, which was actually saying that the French deterrent was there to be discussed with those Europeans interested. But also it's a conversation with a non-nuclear country, starting with Germany, on saying, okay, what is it that we need? especially in the event of a lesser U.S. commitment to European security. How does that work in practice? So is it about doing more um, non-nuclear mission, uh, or is it about uh, having nuclear sharing arrangements, or is it about having a more uh, European nuclear conversation? And none of that is happening today, uh, neither in a NATO context, nor in an EU context, nor in a bilateral context, because Last time Germany accepted to sign a document that mentioned nuclear deterrence with France was in 1996. Uh, uh, that was in the Kohl-Chirac era. Uh, since then, it has been a taboo. The French need to be a little more relaxed about the NATO nuclear conversation. Uh, 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 but, uh, but that the, the Germans uh, um, and many others need to be a little more relaxed about the nuclear conversation altogether. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, t- telling the Germans to lighten up <laughs> and relax and learn to love the bomb is going to be an easy sell here, I'm sure. Georgina, what is the state of that discussion in Paris? And also, I mean, you have you have a British eye as well. Uh, would you, if, if you want to bring that into the conversation, we'd love to hear it too. 
I mean, I also, I sort of almost think that that conversation about the nuclear deterrent, France and the UK should be having it together as well about for the rest of Europe. And I'm not even sure that conversation is really happening uh, at a very strategic level. Um, and it's something I've written about before and, and pushed before. I think, you know, we're talking about Macron, obviously, he's been around for a very long time in the French government, and there's been consistency in foreign policy, and especially on, on, on nuclear deterrent. But 2027 is around the corner, and we could have a very different uh, French president in, in power. And if you look at the far left or the far right, um, and frankly, even if you look at some of the centrist kind of parties, centre right, they're not all that kind about Germany. Uh, there's a lot of feeling of free riding. You know, you hear Marine Le Pen say, oh, yeah, Germany, you know, squeezes us and then gets all our cheap electricity. And, you know, I hope we don't go down that route, but we could be in a situation where it becomes much more transactional. And so what can you were saying in a very sort of... Um, I think perfectly put all the different things that we should be thinking about, all those conversations we should be having. Um, it really is a matter of, you know, if, if you were to some extent share or extend the nuclear deterrent, what, what are other countries going to provide in return? And, and that conversation really should happen right now. We know that Scholz and Macron probably don't, uh, you know, don't get on perhaps like Macron Merkel did. Um, but if you can't have that conversation with Macron, then who can you have it with? Um, and, I, and I really think that there's, there are kind of key things here about showing that we are, it's not just about the nuclear deterrent, it's about much more. Um, and it's about thinking as much as possible European and not necessarily EU, but, but, but European. Um, and in some way involving the Brits. I mean, the Brits will love any opportunity to talk about European stuff and you know more opportunities to meet their French and German counterparts um, but it's, it's a very difficult discussion but I think we shouldn't lose sight of what that the French domestic debate and they're not talking about Germany every day but when they do it's not always overwhelmingly positive and then I just want to end on that I think you know I'm, I'm a little bit worried about Germany and France just taking less of an interest in each other, not at the government level, not at the think tank level, obviously not between the two armies. But there's a but but there's you know German government choosing to close certain of the Guto institutes in in France. We're seeing fewer and fewer French students learn German and vice versa. Um, even business links are not what they used to be, and I think we really need to rebuild that if we're going to have any sort of strategic conversation. Um, about the future of Europe or future of European security? I think the, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of the loss of relationship between the civil societies. You know, in my generation, it was absolutely standard to take German as a first language. It was this thing that good students would do to travel to Germany. I haven't seen that happening in the, um, uh, in the generations of my students today. Uh, it's quite rare. It's a bit of a niche thing to be a German speaker, to, to study German at school and so on and so forth. And I think it's really a massive loss. And I think we should be very careful with this. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the fact that the, both societies know each other less, uh, that the business community know, know each other less, uh, uh, that is, is, a, is something that is quite traumatic and that we shouldn't, uh, and maybe in a way we are paying, we're already paying, seeing this when we see, you know, young members of parliament on both sides who have no familiarity, uh, the new generation has no familiarity with the other side of the Rhine. And that is a, a something that is really of critical importance. It does sometimes feel that the French and the Germans know Americans better than they know each other. And I think... You have two large neighbours who are key drivers in the EU. Um, they need to understand each other. There need to be many more links between the two societies than there are today. Let's talk about the spectre of Le Pen in 2027 for a moment. Uh, just... I ask this question uh, because if we look at uh, the nature of Trump and Trumpism uh, in the U.S., we do see, as we've said before, that uh, it's not uh, confined to a single figure in terms of uh, its disinterest in Europe or its uh, transactional way of looking at relationships with Europe, that sort of thing. 
And so the danger of that, which we have said uh, just now, that we think that Berlin is not really pricing in, is that um, this sort of shift might be long-term and not an aberration that's down to one person who is Trump. What is the uh, danger that that might happen um, if we were to have a Le Pen presidency? Would we be looking at a situation of a very strained uh, Franco-German relationship for a couple of years and then we just go back to normal? Or is there potential for a sort of a longer-term erosion if, if that sort of thing were to happen? Well, the first thing, having just spoken about 2027, I will now go uh, slightly against what I said and saying it's far too early to know what's going to happen in 2027 because we can look at the far right and doing they're doing quite well in the polls. Um, obviously, the, the, the far left are doing quite well, but it really also depends on what happens to the centrist uh, bloc, um, particularly to Macron, Macron's party, uh, but also the coalitions around that. So, so I think it's a little bit too early to say, and, and particularly on the right, we'll have to see who runs and who decides to throw their hat in the ring. But beyond that, I think if we had a Marine Le Pen president, it would become an incredibly transactional foreign policy. Um, and, and, I, and I think it will be everything viewed in, is it in our national interest? And if we're doing this with someone, what are they bringing to the table? How is it helping us? And I think that's going to be a key driver. Um, on the EU, I mean, I wrote a piece about this a while ago, you know, she might have ambitions about the EU, but she might quickly find out that if you're, you know, in the EU, it's not just about saying I'm France and I veto everything, because actually most most decisions are taken by consensus. So you're going to have to build a coalition. Um, who are going to be her natural allies? You know, she's already been interviewed in the Italian paper La Repubblica, where she disses completely Meloni by saying, you know, you've ignored your voters and you're becoming too technical and you're following the Brussels line. And so she's, they, they don't look like natural allies. So who, you know, is it going to be Orban and Fico from Slovakia? I mean, there's, there are questions of how those coalitions build. Um, but I, but I would worry about the Franco-German relationship under a Le Pen presidency, but I would also worry about, frankly, the, the state of Franco-German relations under any president, because, it, it, you know, Gemi's absolutely right, it takes a while for the gel to, to really take and, and for, for the Chancellor and the French president to know each other. And we all know the German government at the moment, this coalition of three very different parties, they all have views, and that the French system is very different to the German system, so the Chancellor can promise anything he likes if he goes back to Berlin and his economic minister says, no way, that's it. You know, there's they're very difficult. It's very different from France, where if Macron says yes, it's basically going to be yes. So so I think we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but we really need to be rebuilding. And I think both Berlin and Paris know that the rebuilding needs to happen now because we need to be in better shape for 2027. Right. I think there is that recognition is there action to match it in Berlin? Difficult to say. It also depends on the state, of course, of German politics in 2027. And at the moment, we see a very fractious coalition, uh, which behind the scenes, there's all sorts of tensions between the coalition partners here. Georgina, in your forthcoming piece for Internationale Politique, and uh, we will insert show notes, links to this where possible for things that have been released, um, you mentioned two, two things I'd like to pick up, if you don't mind. One is saying uh, the niece of Marine Le Pen saying it's possible to win simply by being against what's currently in place. But I think what you're saying is it's not possible to govern like that. You actually have to have, so, especially when you're in an international environment and you rely on your partners for so much. And that's been a, a lesson for uh, Andre Babish in the Czech Republic, for example, a populist, very transactional, needed to find coalitions as well to get things done. Obviously, a very different position in the EU to, to France, but nonetheless, same lesson. The other thing, though, is this, this notion of moving back to the nation state, the return of the nation state and the end of globalization. Now, that is anathema to a lot of the thinking in Berlin, as we currently see it. Yet, of course, an IFD administration or any kind of IFD influenced government would have a different take on it. The goal here is very much to keep that cordon sanitaire, keep the IFD out. And so as long as that rhetoric is dominated by them, then I think finding any kind of cooperation on that seems, seems a far way away. But perhaps we're missing a trick on actually leveraging the positive sides of the nation, the positive sides of what could actually be taken from a more progressive point of view about... Um, 
a return, a resurgent national spirit that could be used for progressive purpose. At least that's something we, we try and think through here. I very much agree with Georgina that, of course, the, the, the shots have not been called. Nobody knows what the playing field is going to be in, in, in 27 in France, uh, especially since Macron cannot run again. So it's going to be a new face for the, um, let's say, mainstream politics uh, uh, there. Uh, and with a, a big question mark on whether we're going to go back to the traditional right and left uh, 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 coalition or whether we're going to see uh, this, uh, the, what we've seen under Macron of a, of a big uh, centrist party uh, competing with the far right, essentially. Uh, so uh, having said this, I would, uh, and I was not like this in uh, 17 or 22, I would be uh, more cautious on the, the, the risk of an election of Marine Le Pen. I think they... There, uh, you know, in in in, she's crossed a number of thresholds. She's she's really trying hard to look mainstream on a number of issues. She did that recently um, uh, on the issue of anti-Semitism, where she she really worked hard to uh, not appear as anchored in the roots of the party uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's very interesting to see that unfolding, and there is an, a non-zero risk of her, of her being elected. Then, of course. She will need some sort of a coalition. I would uh, suspect that she would try on issues like foreign policy to have someone relatively mainstream or technical as a minister to start with, to not terrify her, her partners. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, um, she indeed has an agenda uh, and she's made very clear that she doesn't like the Meloni approach to all of this, uh, of um, being relatively mainstream when it comes to EU and NATO affairs to be able to develop the domestic agenda as much as possible. Uh, and that is going to be a big, big challenge for the partners. Uh, I mean, notwithstanding of where are the partners themselves, so, you know, we're going to look at the, uh, you know, other European elections and there might be more partners by then than there are today. Uh, but uh, but, you know, given the nature of the French system, she will not be locked in a coalition pact and she will therefore have a pretty free hand to do and say stuff that are uh, going to be super awkward. Uh, you know, she's in favor of withdrawing French forces from the NATO military command. She has had a quite clearly pro-Putin agenda, even though she toned it down a little bit uh, since Ukraine. I think it's going to be a very, very rocky start and certainly with Germany in particular because Germany for those far right and by the way far left parties tends to be the target of everything you know you know blaming blaming on the Germans if you don't if you don't know what to do with something so the EU is uh, technocratic and uh, it's because the Germans have too much influence uh, the euro is too strong that's because the Germans have too much influence uh, and, uh, and 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 so on and so forth so so that's going to be that's going to make things extraordinarily difficult at first. Um, and we're going to see how things unfold, whether she, she would eventually become uh, more serious or not. Uh, it will very much depend on the sort of government she can form. For me, it's a major, major risk uh, to uh, the Franco-German relationship. We were saying when we, as we were opening this conversation that the Franco-German relationship is sort of... Um, a crisis proof uh, because of the institutionalization, because of the, the 60 years of Franco-German uh, uh, friendship uh, and building up that friendship on institutions and so on. Uh, I, I would argue that this is one risk uh, of seeing it uh, really um, uh, at least put aside for a long period. Uh, because uh, I don't think it's going to be easily mainstreamed and I don't think that the, you know she's going to grow up into being a good partner for a chancellor she, she fundamentally would disagree with. Uh, whomever is that chancellor, and on the assumption that it's unlikely that the chancellor would be from AFD. So big questions there, ranging from the level of the geopolitical all the way through to societal and personal connections between France and Germany and French people and, and Germans. And one can't help but wonder, indeed, is this a relationship on the decline? Is this a relationship of waning interest? Or is in fact one that is becoming normalised and one that is giving room to actually know others as well as just each other? That old exclusive couple that we uh, saw before maybe becoming more used to actually being, being better friends with others too. Using that opportunity positively is something that anyone who's interested in European security and in the future of Europe should take seriously and make to work happen. 
Because if we lose the Franco-German relationship and don't also add in to that space um, the relationships that could replace it, the mutual relations of care between, for example, Central and Eastern Europe and Western Europe that could perhaps provide a more sustainably balanced European security in future, then we would all stand to lose. That's only going to happen, though, if more Europe means more Europe and not more France and Germany. Well, yeah, I would certainly say so. Is there room for other people to actually come and sit at the table? Um, Or whether the Franco-German relationship is on the decline or not? As we've also heard, it's such an institutionalized relationship. I don't think that those things are necessarily going away. Although we may see some... uh, Uh, political shakeups at the very top in that relationship over uh, the next few years. But I do think that um, on the the more bottom-up level, we are continues to see an important um, institutionalized relationship. Right, but not one we can take for granted. And I think that's been a big message that's come across. We can't take any of this for granted. And there's so much that's changing that we have to pay attention to. It's difficult to have the bandwidth. But again, that's, that's one of the reasons why we do Berlin Side Out, is to try and direct attention to priorities for policymakers, but also for publics around Europe and around the, the world. Thank you also to our guests this week for joining us. You can find out more about them and their recent work in our show notes. For now, though, until next time from Berlin, auf Wiedersehen, au revoir and tschüss. Und bonsoir et je suis désolé. <laughs>